Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. On January 3rd, 2019, the 116th Congress was convened in Washington, D.C. According to such organizations as the Pew Research Center, there are more women in this Congress than in previous Congresses, and this is the most racially and ethnically diverse Congress so far. In light of this development, I wanted to talk to a couple of experts who could discuss the experience of women in Congress, including women of color both discussing their experience running for Congress as well as their experience governing once elected, and offering both contemporary and historical perspective. I am lucky to have had a chance to discuss these issues with Nadia Brown of Purdue University and Barbara Palmer of Baldwin-Wallace University. I'm pleased to share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, Up That Hill. Welcome to Tatter, and thank you for taking the time to join with us. Uh, and going over to you, Nadia, first, you are at Purdue University? Correct. And you are an associate professor of political science? Political science and African-American studies. Okay, excellent. Uh, and, oh, and by the way, uh, congratulations are in order. You uh, just had uh, Neva, if I recall correctly? Yes. Uh, so congratulations on a new Thank addition you. to your family. Uh, and Barbara, you are at Baldwin-Wallace University? Yes. And you are a professor of political science, legal studies coordinator, creator and executive director of the Baldwin-Wallace Center for Women in Politics of Ohio? Correct. That's a mouthful. Each of you wears multiple hats. If I recall correctly, Nadia, you're also... You're the poli-sci grad recruitment and admissions committee chair? Yes. Each of you is keeping very, very busy. Uh, so uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And as you know, I reached out to you both uh, because of what happened last fall here in the U.S. where uh, we saw the election uh, to the U.S. Congress of by at least – gender and race slash ethnicity, uh, one of, if not the most diverse uh, Congresses. Uh, so according to Vox.com, 117 women uh, were elected or appointed, with 102 to the House and 15 to the Senate. Out of that, 36 uh, uh, were women who were new members, and 23 uh, members of the House freshman class uh, were people of color. So we just saw a significant boost in uh, diversity uh, in the Congress. And one of the things that I want to start with, and I'll throw this question first to you, Barbara, is to get a sense 
of history. When we think about the election of women to Congress, if someone were to ask you, as I am now, what some of the biggest, uh, most significant barriers to women's election to Congress um, uh, have been, what would your answer be? One of the biggest barriers to women is one of the biggest barriers that any candidate faces, and that's incumbency. Um, you know, incumbency, incumbency, I mean, if you don't understand incumbent, incumbency, you're just not going to be able to understand American elections at all, especially for the U.S. House. And when you look back over the history of Congress, going back all the way to the beginning, I think it's interesting to note that, you know, incumbency really wasn't a factor for the first 100, 150 years in Congress. Um, initially, Congress, serving in Congress was seen as an honor. It was something that you did for a term or two, and then you moved on and let the next man um, fill that seat. And the other issue was just, you know, getting to D.C. was really difficult, and D.C. wasn't a particularly pleasant place until, you know, well into the 20th century. There's a joke that um, when they installed air conditioning in the 30s in the Capitol, suddenly the session doubled because, you know, the members from the South actually wanted to be there. So what's fascinating is that you, you start to see members wanting to be in Congress longer and pursue the House in particular as a career right around the time that women were first starting to run for Congress. Um, the very first woman to serve and be elected in 1916 was Jeanette Rankin, um, who was a Republican from Montana. And it was right around that time when you begin to see this change in the institution. So it's just right as women are starting to kind of, you know, play the political game is right when you see this institutional barrier beginning to form. And of course, by the 1960s, incumbency is in, you know, its full force. And that's when you really begin to see more and more numbers of women actually running. So, and that's true for, you know, any kind of candidate. If you want more um, people of color, if you want fewer lawyers, if you want more teachers, you know, they're going to face this barrier. So Nadia, is there anything that you would want to add in terms of barriers to either women's election uh, to the U.S. House or Senate or people of color? Sure, yes. Um, so what immediately came to my mind were the um, breaking down of both legal and um, kind of, you know, de jure and de facto um, laws and rules and regulations that prohibited women um, and people of color from voting um, and themselves seeking elected office, right? So I'm thinking about um, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that ushered in the ability for um, people of color, particularly African-Americans, to vote for, to effectively, right, to, to, to have, have rights to the ballot box, right? And they can then decide they want to have elected representatives who look like them, that come from their communities and understand their needs. So, you know, while, um, you know, the Constitution granted, again, to think specifically in the case of African-Americans, the, you know, the right to suffrage through the Reconstruction Amendments and women through the 19th Amendment, it's not legally plausible until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. For, um, you know, Asian Americans, it becomes this McCarran-Walter Act when immigration codes get rewritten. Um, right, Latinos have are given access again through parts of the Voting Rights Act, and particularly in the Southwest. Um, but communities of color have needed extra measures, although 
the you know the, the rules of the game say everyone has access to voting and everyone has access to um, voting for a candidate of their choice. That actually isn't the case until modern day history. So the numbers or the increase in numbers that we see of women of color, of people of color, is is a really recent phenomenon. And as you opened up, right, we're saying that this is the most diverse Congress in history. It's not a small coincidence that this is just, you know, one generation out from from these, um, you know, from these pathbreaking laws and and policies that the federal government has has enacted that has allowed communities of color and other marginalized communities to be able to vote and elect representatives that look like them. You know, I think Nadia actually brings up a really good point. And, you know, when you look at sort of the history of, of women serving, the very first woman to actually run for Congress, and I'm embarrassed to say I learned this about 10 years ago, um, and I never learned this in my women's history classes or anything like that. Um, the very first woman to run for Congress was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She ran in 1866, and it was, we don't know very much about her campaign, but we do know she was on the ballot. She got about two dozen votes, and she joked that they were all of her extended family. Um, But she did it to prove the point that she could not vote for herself. It was legal for her to run, but the absurdity was that she could not vote for herself. And so it was part of the larger suffrage campaign that she and others were waging in the post-Civil War era. Um, to kind of prove this point about how ridiculous this was. So one of the things, I'm just actually flipping through a couple of pages of uh, your uh, book, uh, your co-authored book, Barbara, and uh, on the page after you uh, mentioned that story with uh, Stanton, I see that Rankin, whom you mentioned earlier, uh, Jeanette Rankin, uh, ran for the House, uh, as you put it, after her brother encouraged her, and she ran because, quote, there are hundreds of men to care for the nation's tariff and foreign policy and irrigation projects, but there isn't a single woman to look after the nation's greatest asset, its children. And part of why I find that quote striking is that there's, as this woman is seeking office, seeking to take on this role that has stereotypically and traditionally been reserved for men, She's still invoking the nurturant role uh, that women have stereotypically played. And so I guess the question, and I'll put this first to you, Barbara, is whether you have a sense that historically uh, it's been to women's advantage when seeking office to frame their candidacies in explicitly gender terms in that way. Well, I think the Rankin, you know, Jeanette Rankin's quote, that wonderful quote that you had from her is really sort of indicative of her time. When you look at a lot of the arguments for suffrage during that time period, and of course, we're we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment next year. And so I think hopefully there's gonna be a lot more interest in these kinds of things. Um, Mm -hmm. But when you look at the arguments for suffrage, particularly post-Civil War, they were actually what we would consider sort of conservative and and capitalizing on these stereotypical attitudes towards women as women as homemakers and the guardians of the hearth. And that those were reasons that there were argued to give women the vote. That was very much a part of the campaign to convince men and other women that women should have the vote. So I don't think it should come as any surprise that Jeanette Rankin was making those kinds of claims. But I think what we find, you know, in the late 20th century and the 21st century is I think like any women have to follow the rules of any good campaign. And that is you have to be yourself. 
if those are the issues that you care about and those are the issues you want to campaign on and those are the issues that your constituents care about, then it's going to be to your advantage. However, if those are issues that your constituents don't care about, then as a woman, you know, I don't, you know, women candidates aren't going to be talking in those terms. And so I think today what we find is that women have to just be really good campaigners and talk about issues that are of concern to them and their constituents, which may in some cases reinforce gender stereotypes and in some cases may not. So one of the candidates who was on, was, was not running for uh, legislative office, but still got a lot of attention nationally was Stacey Abrams. And Nadia, I want to throw this question uh, to you first. One of the, one of the things that, I saw Stacey Abrams uh, writing about, and this was in response to a piece by Francis Fukuyama, who was uh, critiquing, to say the least, uh, the invocation of identity politics uh, by candidates. And Stacey Abrams uh, and others seem to rise to its defense. And one of the things that I noticed uh, is that she said, and here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote uh, from her directly, she said, uh, my campaign built an unprecedented coalition of people of color, rural whites, suburban dwellers, and young people in the Deep South by articulating an understanding of each group's unique concerns instead of, instead of trying to create a false image of universality. And so I wonder if you think that either women or women of color specifically uh, have, uh, as Abrams is suggesting was the case for her, benefited from the invocation of what Fukuyama has written off critically as identity politics. Right. So I think that, um, yeah, I'll kind of give a nod to Barbara here with this historical lens. I think that what's uh, often missing in how we, you know, talk about identity politics in its contemporary state is as if it's something, um, a rather newish concept that, um, it's kind of born out of today's politics or policies. But I, I want to, you know, remind your listeners that the term identity politics was actually coined by the Kabahi River Collective in the late 1970s, right? And it's a group of Black radical feminists who are writing about their own lived experiences and theorizing from their social locations to, um, to help make their community a more holistically just place, right? And they're tackling issues that, um, right, other other feminists, particularly other Black feminists, aren't even thinking about. And, and one of those um, is an issue of, um, you know, poor women, immigrant women, women of color that have been killed in the Boston area and the police aren't investigating and the police aren't looking into what's going on. And these um, you know, black feminists are writing that this is a problem, but they're also actively engaged in grassroots politics around um, right, around these murders that are, are going uninvestigated and unsolved. And I think um, it's important to note this in kind of in response to how modern day critics are thinking about identity politics. But I think that Stacey Abrams is, uh, you know, is absolutely correct, right? We're not using intersectionality politics, excuse me, inter-identity politics in a very flat essentialist way, but instead, right, bringing into a much more nuanced intersectional account of saying particular groups have particular issues and needs that need to be addressed. And 
a black woman can understand some of those things by her social location as being um, marginalized or advantaged by race and gender and what other other kinds of intersecting identities. But it puts them at this position to ask what Mary Masuda would call this other question, right? Like, who are we leaving out? What kind of analysis are we not having? And that's the benefit of, of identity politics, right? Is understanding that there are different groups of people that are impacted differently by politics um, and, and how policymakers are thinking about the best way to solve a problem. And that is something that Black women, right, since Mariah Stewart, the first, um, you know, um, woman to kind of get up and talk about um, what we would now consider you know, like a Black feminist rallying cry, um, right, in the 1830s, was talking about. And we see that, right, today with, with Stacey Abrams, who is using her own social location to say, I don't understand or, um, you know, can't put myself in the, in the lived position of, let's say, um, you know, undocumented immigrants. But I have enough understanding uh, to know how social marginalization works or economic and political marginalization works to have, um, you know, a better understanding of how a policy might be able to benefit someone or why this group might come to the legislative decision-making table with a different set of questions or, um, you know, recommendations or suggestions how to fix an issue. And I think that's what's missing in how we think about identity politics. It's taken on a really, you know, negative or dirty, you know, dirty connotation. But in actuality, it's a better way, to my mind, of understanding how policymakers can address the issues that face particular groups. Well, just to build on that, one of the things that Abrams also said in this article in Foreign Affairs was that in her bid for governor in Georgia, she didn't rely solely on her racial or class or other identity. She also highlighted issues such as police shootings of African-Americans, LGBTQ rights, expanding Medicaid. She said, and here this is a quote, I refuse to accept the notion that the voters most affected by these policies, including, I would imagine, and here I'm paraphrasing, including voters who look like her, would invariably support me simply because I was a member of a minority group. And so my question, and I'd love to hear from each of you, is can you articulate exactly what the relationship you see is between membership in a particular group on the one hand, that is a candidate's membership in a group, and their ability to effectively represent members of that group on the other. Because it seems as if even Stacey Abrams is not arguing, and I'm and, and Nadia, I'm not saying you are arguing this either. Mm-hmm. She seems she seems not to be arguing that membership in the category African American, being an African American is sufficient to ensure that African-American constituents will be well represented. So it's clearly not a relationship of sufficiency, but what is the relationship between the membership of the candidate on the one hand and their ability to effectively represent constituents who look like them on the other? So I think, um, you know, this is um, kind of Jane Mansbridge's canonical work that, um, when um, a representative comes from uh, under um, comes from an underrepresented community, that marginalized voices usually don't shine through 
But we see the most good of electing people from these um, organized groups when interests are uncrystallized, meaning that these might be things that the public has not come to think about or debate yet. The the candidate hasn't run on this issue before. It's it's a new um, you know a new topic that just arrives. So it might be something like uh, you know you get elected in 2018 and now in you know, 2019, we're dealing with, um, you know, the, the possibility of pulling out of Yemen or, or right, something that just maybe was not a scene um, back when you were elected. And that's when the most good of having a, an, um, having a representative that looks like you comes into play because voters think we didn't have some kind of contract. I didn't know what you were going to do before I elected you. I didn't, you know, vote for you based on if, you know, what this issue, future issue might be, but because you have experienced life in some ways that are very similar to mine, I think that you would do the thing that I would want you to do, or I think you would act the way I would act if I were given the opportunity to, um, you know, to serve in a deliberative body. And I think that's what, um, you know, Stacey Abrams and others of this ilk, right, are able to do. They are, drawing on their own identities and they're saying, this is who I am, this is how I see the world. And if you vote for me, you can expect that if an issue were to arise that we have not discussed on the campaign trail, you kind of have a good sense of what I would do, of how I would, you know, how I would act um, legislatively on on an issue that would, would be concerning. The other thing, um, I want to note kind of more specifically to Stacey Abrams, a colleague, uh, Chrissy, Christina Greer at Fordham University and I have been conducting focus groups and um, talking with particularly black women voters in Georgia around Stacey Abrams. And one of the things that came through was the sense that black women voters really wanted to dive into the substance of who Stacey is and what she would do for them if elected and really pushing back from this idea that, you know, if you look like me, I should automatically vote for you. I really want, and the voters really want to be engaged. And we saw this, um, you know, quite recently at the, oh, now the name is escaping me, but she, um, it was the, Oh, the event last week in Texas where all, I think nine of the major Democratic candidates came and spoke to a group of um, women of color. But the questions that the candidates received were so specific and so nuanced, right? Like, um, and even, you know, last or earlier this week might have been um, right in Nevada where candidates went and, you know, they got asked really specific questions, particularly around immigration and what does it mean to be an undocumented, you know, a woman working in a casino, right? Like these are really specific questions around sexual assault that goes under the radar because women are undocumented. And candidates are being, um, you know, you can't rely on a generic, I think we should, um, you know, increase minimum wage, or I think that it's really good for us to tackle immigration. but that voters are really pushing candidates to have a much more um, a, a lean in with policy as opposed to some of these 
it's like falling back on identity politics, like, well, I'm one of you, or I live in this community, so I understand what it's like to be you. But voters really want to know, no, what would you do? How would you address these things that are real life issues, and particularly real life issues for women of color who often don't get heard, but are the backbone of the Democratic Party, right, who outvote um, other demographic groups in support of Democratic candidates, you know, hands down. So, I mean, so... I, so I, in some ways, I think I feel like I'm answering your question in two separate ways, right? Mm-hmm. One of saying like the benefits of what having a representative who looks like you does and, and what they would do and why voters might select them. But on the other hand, really talking about what voters want is not, um, you know, candidate that looks like them just, just for its sake of descriptive representation, but actually are pushing candidates now to really address the issues and needs um, that their particular communities have. And so shifting to Barbara, I know that your work has been historical in nature. And so I think I'll tweak the question a bit and ask you, when you look back across the years, the decades, even to some extent, the centuries in the U.S., when you've looked at women who have run for the legislature, do you have a sense of either the ways in which female constituents have benefited from having a woman represent them, or alternatively, the ways in which women running for office have, have, have emphasized to female voters benefits of electing them? Well, I think, I, you know, I, I want, I'd like to sort of echo some of the things that Nadia said. I mean, she made a much more nuanced argument about this um, than I would. I just, and back in grad school, I remember learning, you know, the rational voter theory and just kind of laughing. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, most voters base their votes on sort of silly things. And we know that, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But, um, you know, we want to think that it's just it's about the issues and that's what it's all about. And no, we know that voters make shortcuts. And sometimes those shortcuts include things like race, gender, class, and all those kinds of things. Um, and the other thing I think that's really important to keep in mind is that, you know, women are not a monolith, you know, um, you know, can a woman represent, can only a woman represent women? I think, you know, most of us would say no, but, um, and not all women are in agreement about even what that means. And so I think that's really important. I'm going to give a shout out to one of my colleagues, um, Lauren Copeland at Baldwin Wallace, who's the head of our community research institute. So we have our own little polling firm on campus. We're given Quinnipiac a run for the money. And mm-hmm. she's done some amazing polling um, in Ohio on um, uh, Ohioans' attitudes towards Trump. So obviously the state went for Trump in 2016. And so there's a lot of interest in what's going to happen in Ohio. And so she um, and some of her students did this amazing research where they broke down Ohioans' opinions on Trump and the economy and some other things based on gender. And, you know, Lauren came to me with some of her results and she showed, and I can't remember the exact percentage, but there were still, I think like 30% of Republican women still had a favorable impression of Trump. And she was just shocked by this. Mm. And I'm like, well, no, that seems about right. (laughs) And she said, but why does the media and why do academics fall into this trap of saying all women, you know, are Democrats and talking about women as a group? Like, why do we keep doing that? And I think she, and she has a point, you know, we tend to make this mistake. Now it is true that women do have a tendency to be more supportive of democratic candidates. And I think, you know, even Hillary Clinton fell into that trap 
of assuming, you know, I'm a female candidate. I'm the first female candidate for president. You know, women are going to rally behind me. And we saw none of that happening. So I think that's really important to keep in mind that, um, yeah, it's obviously important, but there's a lot of other things going on um, in voters' heads that are going to be more important. On the other hand, we know that, you know, the, the group, the subgroup of women that are the most likely to support female candidates are women who consider themselves independents because they don't have that party cue or necessarily a particular issue cue. And so then for them, gender is going to be really important. Okay, so what happens once women get elected? Um, there's some really great research by Michelle Swears um, on the House and the Senate who's done some fantastic in-depth research on, so what do women do once they actually get into the House and the Senate? And what's fascinating is when you compare the voting records of men and women in Congress, particularly when you control for the districts that they come from, you, can, you can't see any differences between the way men and women are behaving in the House and the Senate. And it's all explained by the districts that they come from. You know, they have to please their voters. Um, however, we know there are significant differences in the kinds of issues that they bring to the table. And it's not that men don't care about these issues or don't support these issues, but it's just not on their radar. It's not at the forefront. Um, I think it's, you know, a great example I can give you is in 1993, um, one of the very first things that Congress did after we had this huge influx of new women into Congress and elected in 1992, the first thing that was passed was the Family and Medical Leave Act. That bill had been bouncing around Capitol Hill for decades, and it wasn't until you finally had the surge of women in Congress that it finally got pushed through. Um, and it helped that President Clinton said that he would sign it. Um, but it just took this, you know, a critical mass of women to really put that, make that a priority and get it done. Can you unpack what you were, were uh, alluding to when you said that the districts that tend to elect women have historically been different uh, from the districts that have been less likely to? Sure. Yeah. And so that's been a big part of the research that I was doing with Dennis. We were really, really interested in exploring what we call the political geography of women's success. And it was, it started out as kind of a lark. Um, we had all this great demographic data and, you know, there's the traditional, if you ask any political consultant or candidate, you know, there's certain kinds of districts that will tend have certain demographic characteristics that tend to favor a Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate. And so we wanted to take those same demographic um, those same demographic profiles and see if you could use them to predict whether a man or a woman would work. And I remember when we first started exploring this, it was probably 15 years ago, we really had no idea if we would find anything. And it was just going to be this sort of kind of one-off kind of analysis to see if we could find anything. And as it turns out, there are differences, um, significant differences between the kinds of districts that elect women and the kinds of districts that elect men, even after controlling for party. And so what we found is that the districts that tend to be far more supportive of female candidates tend to be wealthier, which you would expect for Republican candidates, but not necessarily for women candidates. Um, the districts tend to be, have more people with college degrees. Um, those are the districts that elect women over men. They tend to be urban. And again, that's true for Republican women and Democratic women. Um, and so we found these really interesting differences between these types of districts. And so we came up with this idea of the women-friendly district model. And so the districts where you're going to see a lot more female candidates of both parties tend to be the kind of, you know, Tony, she, she, redeveloped, you know, urban loft kinds of districts. Um, and so we did our analysis through uh, 20, 
uh, I'm sorry, 2012. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to update it. And, and I suspect that things may have changed. I mean, with gerrymandering being such that it is, um, you know, I'm not quite sure that this is true anymore. I think districts have just become so gerrymandered um, that that's what's really determining everything here rather than these more subtle kinds of, subtle and more interesting kinds of things. So just a couple of follow-up questions on that. Um, first, uh, Barbara, do you see those same three factors, wealthy, urbanness, and uh, more likely to have a college degree as not only accounting for uh, the uh, variance within party in uh, 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 gender, that is, within Republicans, the women who get elected are more likely to come from wealthy, urban, better educated districts, likewise on the Democratic side. Do, do those factors also account for differences between parties? That is, when I imagine the stereotypical House district likely to send a Republican to Congress, I call me a stereotyper. I imagine it's not as wealthy, not as urban, not as well-educated. That is to say, part of what drives the lower frequency of women being elected in the Republican Party is because their districts don't look like the overall, the districts that tend to elect women. Am I off base there? No, I think you're right. Um, and and it's, I think it's interesting that you bring up party um, and, and looking at you know, the role of party in all of this, particularly, you know, because with gerrymandering, we're just getting, you know, such extreme districts. I think you're absolutely, I think your characterization is correct. Um, I think the other challenge um, is that, I mean, the, the bottom line is neither party cares all that much about electing women, um, neither the DNC or the RNC. I mean, they give good lip service to, you know, we want to elect women, but the bottom line is they just, they don't care. Um, and they don't put any resources toward it. And but but we what we've seen that also is tending to help Democratic women is you have a lot more groups that have been along around for a long time that do help female candidate candidates, and they've tended to help Democratic female candidates. Um, you know, Emily's List is sort of the classic example here. They've been around since the mid '80s, and they're one of the most powerful and successful political action committees in history. Um, you also have the Women's Campaign Fund, and now you have groups like Emerge America, who specifically are out there to recruit and train female candidates, and they tend to be Democrats. Um, the Republicans are finally starting to, to get caught up in terms of creating these kinds of institutional structures and groups. Um, we're finally starting to see some uh, legitimate and powerful conservative Republican women's PACs. Um, that's, you know, that's only just happened in the last five to six years. And we're starting to see some additional groups who are out there trying to recruit Republican women to win. Um, so there's, there's that going on here, too, that help explains a lot of what's happening in terms of candidate recruitment. And then my second follow-up, I'm going to direct first to Nadia. Do you consider those same three factors as also being ones that predict the likelihood of a district electing uh, a congressperson of color um, or, or a woman of color in particular? That is, do the districts that elect representatives or senators of color, uh, are, they, are they wealthier? Are they more urban? Do they, are they also more likely to be ones uh, where voters have college degrees? Yes. So I would agree with um, all of that. And I'd also add, um, just kind of like taking a step back into the pipeline about where these women are coming from. Um, so places that see women that have cut their chops in uh, state and local offices are most likely to get elected in places like multi-member districts or, um, and again, right, 
some of the same criteria for their state and local offices that um, that Barbara mentioned. But this is where voters are looking to see, right, do these women know what they're talking about, right? So have these women walk the walk and live, you know, live the live the talk or whatever the saying goes um, <laughs> in kind of an earlier iteration before running for the House or running for the Senate. And some of the exciting places for me in my research takes place at the state and local levels because you get to see kind of who who may or may not move on to federal office. And again, looking at state legislatures is a great place to do this because this is a place where women have already expressed political ambition. They're already, um, you know, networked in or in the pipeline and where we see a lot of that bottleneck happen, like Barbara mentioned, both parties are not doing a great job of actively supporting women um, as candidates. Um, Both parties could do a much, much better job. But if we are looking for where would a party, you know, do well to, to recruit, it's really at the state and local levels, right? So who is in an executive um, position in a state office, who's in the legislature, who's, um, you know, and some lower level offices like school boards um, that that might move up, we need to pay attention to. But in particular for, for women of color, what we find is that when they are candidates, um, they have a much harder time raising money. They are, even if they do challenge an incumbent, which is what Barbara started, up, started us off on, they have much less name recognition and are easier to be, um, have their issues kind of co-opted or taken by the um, the incumbent, and particularly if that incumbent is a man, and is seen as um, a way that this person is reaching out to minority issues or women's issues. I'll give you the example of Donna Edwards and Chris Van Hollen in, in Maryland, who had pretty similar um, voting records. But because Donna Edwards, uh, you know, is a black woman, she was seen as playing identity politics. Where Chris Van Hollen, who was a white man, is a white man, was seen as just being inclusive. Um, so all of these things, in addition to the districts or the composition of where people are running, but also more of that uh, sociological side, right? That who runs, who gets paid attention to, you know, um, what kind of money are people able to to raise? also need to be part of the conversation. Well, and I think even just looking at Ohio, you can begin to sort of see all these things come together. I mean, we had, so Ohio has 16 House seats. And we had a record number of women running in primaries this year. And we had a record number of women who won their primaries. We had women running in, I think it was 10 or 11 of our House seats. However, we had no net gain in the number of women that we send to the house. The mm. only women who won were the three female Democratic incumbents um, because all of those other women were running in seats that were so heavily gerrymandered, they just had no chance. So I recall that uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder. Uh, is, if I recall correctly, he's a part of an organization whose name escapes me, but they're uh, fighting against gerrymandering. And I want to make sure that I'm clear here. It sounds as if, Barbara, based on what you're saying, that a potential byproduct of reducing the prevalence of gerrymandering, given that it 
often tends to reinforce incumbency advantage is that uh, uh, reducing that gerrymandering could actually be beneficial to uh, female challengers and challengers of color. Am I, is that speculation uh, a bit far-fetched? No, I don't, I don't think it's far-fetched at all. I mean, again, I think once you open up the process, you're opening it up to, you know, all kinds of new people and, and that could, and that's going to benefit women. And so, you know, I think your logic is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, you just, you just never know. I think, you know, another th- great example of this is in Ohio, we have term limits for our state legislature. And, you know, back in the nineties when term limits were the hot issue, a lot of people thought, Hey, you know, term limits is all about, you know, breaking the power of incumbency. And so all these great new people are going to get in and we're going to see this uptick in the number of women in the legislature. And it had zero impact at all. Um, at least in Ohio. Um, the, the evidence has been very, very mixed that term limits actually help with rotation and get more new people in and, and, and increase people who have been traditionally um, shut out of the process. And, you know, in, in fact, in Ohio, we've seen, you know, achingly slow increases in the number of women in both our state house and Senate. Um, and, you know, so term limits, you know, everybody thought, hey, this is going to be great. And it, it wasn't. So you never know. So, Nadia, shifting to the state house specifically, I wonder if in your work you've seen any evidence of there being particular issues that are either more likely to be put on uh, the agenda or brought into discussion by uh, women of color in the legislature or issues that are that are handled differently by women of color than other members of the state house? Sure. So in my work, I give an example of domestic violence legislation where the um, black women from the, um, in, in, in the Maryland state legislature, but the black women from primarily from Baltimore area and Prince George's County, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., were... Um, they challenged a number of bills on the on the floor around domestic violence that um, you know was remarkable for a number of reasons. First, because you know once a bill makes it to a floor, the leadership is pretty much you know assume they've done their due diligence and that they have enough votes to get it to pass. Second, that it was something that the women's caucus had saw on its front as being a women's issue and didn't. Um, I think, you know, I think it's a fair assessment to say they didn't fully um, look into what the implications of that bill might have been or those bills might have been. And these Black women from Prince George's County and Baltimore County and Baltimore City saw that these bills would disproportionately and negatively impact Black families. And the, um, and it was a much more holistic look at who domestic violence, um, you know, anti-domestic violence legislation would help or hurt. And it wasn't a... And, 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 and just to clarify, I mm-hmm. assume that the, the adverse impact would be because of disproportionate rates of incarceration of Black men? Of Black men and Black women, right? So okay. one of the things that um, sociological literature has right, done an excellent job of doing, I'm thinking particularly of um, Black feminist scholarship and sociology, um, but people by like Beth Ritchie and the like have shown is that when marginalized communities, um, you know, members of marginalized communities call the police, 
both parties are more likely to go downtown, right? Or go mm-hmm. questioning, not just the man, but the woman, right? So she is also um, implicated in whatever kind of violence might have beset her. And that leads to the state then most times coming in and taking the children or having um, temporary custody of the children. Um, it leads to adverse effects for employment or for housing um, for both parties involved. So the, you know, the surface view is Domestic violence is usually something that, you know, men do against women and that, you know, men might be, particularly black men might be overly policed, but we don't have a full picture or or a universal understanding of how this impacts women's lives, particularly um, low-income women of color. And then the impact of families, right? So what does it do to the children? What does it do for employment? What does it do for housing? The other part, um, you know, that this also gets at is some of the work that Shatima Threadcraft has been talking about in terms of um, kind of how we think about state-sponsored violence towards women of color, but that women of color are more likely, uh, particularly Black women, are more likely to face abuse at the hands of intimate partner violence from from their boyfriends or spouses or other significant others. And we don't talk about that at all as a form of um, of violence that Black women um, experience, and that some of them are due to the to policies that were made by the state of how, um, you know, how housing gets allocated or how relationships um, get dictated because of federal benefits. So, um, so what we saw was in the Maryland case is that these women were really pushing, the Black women were really pushing the Women's Caucus, Democratic leadership, to really th- rethink about who these bills were helping or hurting. And they successfully mobilized and spoke on the floor to kill legislation that on its surface, right, seemed like it was a good thing for women, but would actually have disastrous effects for Black communities. And this is kind of similar to the work that Wendy Smooth has done, I think, in 2006, where she says that, you know, Black women don't come to the state house to just represent Black women's interests, but they do so to represent Black communities as a whole. And they ask this other question. Um, So how does incarceration for Wendy Smooth's work, right, um, impact or mass incarceration impact Black communities and how are Black women thinking about um, curtailing some of those high, high numbers? If you kind of fast forward to, you know, to today, I was fortunate enough to have a talk with Black women um, elected to the Texas State House, and we had conversations around the high rates of um, Black um, infant and mother mortality rates in the nation and how um, legislation can be crafted to get at some of these issues that will not be discussed by other groups, right? So we find that white women and black men are not talking about maternal and infant mortality rates in black communities. And that this is an issue where um, black women can build coalitions with, you know, across racial and gender lines, but then also um, make connections with other women of color. So the numbers are not as alarming, um, but they are still, I think any, well, I think they are alarming, but they're nest not as sky, sky high for other communities. But these are ways that Black women can then build coalitions with other women of color who have similar, um, you know, similar rates of mortality um, around maternal and infant health. So these are some of the issues that Black women are bringing to the table and are doing things differently and are able to build different kinds of coalitions because both constituencies, whether it's gender or race, see them as things that are important, but not necessarily priority number one, whereas Black women um, 
right, are able to kind of reframe and change the lens to to get again their male and gender counterparts on board and to also raise issues that are much more holistic in nature than just do this, it's good for black women, but how does it help black communities or black families um, as a whole? So it sounds as if one potential paraphrase of at least part of what you're saying is that the benefits of having diverse, say racially uh, diverse, ethnically diverse or gender diverse representation is not simply that there are more votes for specific pieces of legislation, but rather agendas get set differently and interesting and otherwise unlikely to exist alliances can form. Right. Exactly. That's a wonderful paraphrase. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think think that's, yeah, that's exactly. Barbara, I'm looking at chapter five of uh, the book, uh, Women in Congressional Elections. Uh, The title of the chapter is Women as Targets, Understanding the Competitive Environment. And this question takes us back to the incumbency advantage that you began the interview with. But your chapter raises this question. Uh, What happens when a woman overcomes political and cultural barriers, wins a seat in Congress, and becomes an incumbent herself? Does she reap the same benefits of incumbency that men do. Yeah, and ironically enough, female incumbents tend to do slightly better than male incumbents. And it's a very, very small um, difference, but it's consistent. Um, and so once women are in, they too, you know, reap the benefits of incumbency. And in fact, they're a little bit, they're slightly more successful than their male counterparts. And this is partially due to groups like Emily's List and other women's PACs. Well, so as a quick follow up, uh, that chapter also opened with the story of Barbara Mikulski. Do you remember? Yes. And so uh, I'll, I'll let you tell it, but it was a, I, I was struck by uh, the um, one might think that given incumbency advantage that once elected uh, a female candidate's election would deter would deter uh, challengers. But that, that seemed not to be the case there. Yeah. And so ironically enough, um, even though women tend to, female incumbents tend to do better, they actually have to work a little harder to hang on to their seats. Um, they're far more li- female incumbents are far more likely to be challenged in their own primaries. And when you look at the primary and the opposition party, people just seem to come out of the woodwork to run against her. Um, so while they're actually doing better in terms of their success rates, they're actually working harder to get there. Is there any causal relationship? Like, are are they, is there the sort of winnowing process where they have to be stronger because they face stiffer competition? You know, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I I don't know. Okay. Well, let me know when you find out. Okay. One final question that's actually not about U.S. politics, but about U.S. political science. And I know this is too big a question for a brief answer, but as briefly as you can, what are your thoughts on one or maybe two big things that you think are uh, that represent important work left to be done to make uh, political science more gender inclusive? 
So this is something that I actually spend a lot of my time doing, and I feel um, extremely fortunate to be a founding member of Women Also Know Stuff, to have been the past president of the Women's Caucus for Political Science and now the leader of the Me Too Poli Sci Collective. And I find that this work is actually a little bit more enjoyable and rewarding than the scholarship that I do that I Mm. actually, I love and thought that was the epitome of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I think our discipline is, you know, really kind of closed off to some of the, um, the social changes that the rest of the, like the nation and the world has been going through. I think the political science, right, is still grappling with, um, you know, what's an appropriate way to deal with power inequalities and how do we, um, you know, really tackle issues of equity um, and social justice and how we treat people um, and groups in, in the discipline. And I, so I think, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm really on the forefront of dealing with Me Too Poli Sci. So the first thing that comes to my head is, you know, what are our Title IX policies looking like? How is, how is our discipline, the American Political Science Association, the regional associations, dealing with sexual harassment policy? Um, right, to my mind, the the biggest thing is that there's no transparency in how um, right, some of these claims get adjudicated and that universities and the associations are really out to protect themselves let, um, first. And then it's um, you know, left to the individual parties, the accused and the accuser to kind of figure out um, where to go from there. But in doing so, right, it lets off the hook um, the discipline that lets off, right, the, these associations, kind of like the meta structures that, uh, you know, guide our daily lives as political scientists. And, um, and I think that's really the change in the culture that needs to shift. The other part is, um, you know, kind of how, you know, women and particularly women of color who have experienced um, sexual harassment kind of under the radar, um, have have a have a voice or a chance to push back against these structures, and and again I'll, I'll note that it's not just sexual harassment or you know misconduct or violence, but it's any place where power inequities are allowed to flourish, right? So you see this in you know this um, in programs where graduate students are being um, you know take abused or their 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 time is not being valued or they're being asked to do things like you know, show up at an advisor's house to walk their dog or, you know, some, some of these, some of these other things, um, or where junior faculty members are expected not to speak up in a faculty meeting or sit in the back and, you know, not contribute anything to the governance of, of the department. Um, right. These are ways that power, um, you know, kind of manifest itself and actually show itself to be really detrimental that those that have the most power then take a whole bunch of leeway in abusing others. And um, so, you know, one way that we see this is through, you know, the work that we've been doing with the Me Too Poli Sci Collective, but it expands to a whole host of other things. And I, again, I think our discipline is done, um, could do a better job of trying to get at the root cause as opposed to putting a Band-Aid and saying we're going to have a new sexual harassment policy for what happens at a conference. But it's not inclusive. It's not holistic. It doesn't take into account um, the ways in which trans women or women of color, queer women are being affected or that men who are sexually harassed are being affected. So I think that um, some of these policies need to change, but mostly it's, it's the culture. Yeah, I would agree with with Nadia wholeheartedly. Um, I, I've, I've been doing this political science thing for a while, um, and I, I, I've, I've 
had two very, very different experiences. When I first got my PhD, my very first job, this is back in the 90s, um, I was in a department, I was the only woman in a department of 15. And my mm -hmm. colleagues were great, but the dean kept getting me mixed up with the department secretary. Oh. And I real I'm like I got to get out of here or I'm going to have to sue these people. <laughs> yeah. Um and 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 I and I had to seriously think about that. And so I think that's something that's really important. There are so many disincentives still. Right. Not to complain, not to be the troublemaker. You know, and I think that's something that really hasn't my sense is that that hasn't changed. Um mm. however, I'm in a very different situation now at Baldwin Wallace. We have there are 8 of us in the department. We have 4 women and 4 men. So I'm I'm feel incredibly lucky to be in that kind of environment. But I, ironically enough, I think the discipline itself kind of suffers from this incumbency problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were told back, you know, that there was gonna be these massive retirements among, uh, you know, faculty members who were aging, who were all hired in the 60s and who were gonna be aging out. And there were gonna be all these jobs as, you know, the, the political science, uh, the, the folks in the in the discipline got older and were retiring. Well, two things happened. Um, you know, the funding for higher education just got slashed, and those folks didn't retire. And in fact, most of them still haven't retired. And there's this new thing I was reading about in the Chronicle called, and they call it RIP, -E Retire in Place. So you have this older generation that is refusing to retire. And so as a result, you know, change is going to be painfully slow, I think. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Nadia Brown and Barbara Palmer for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about them, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see links to information about each of them, as well as some of the topics that we discussed. As always, to provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can, if you use Twitter, mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or if you follow on iTunes, you can post a review there. Either way, your feedback is appreciated. And in any case, and as always... Thanks for listening, and be well.